move into the word. Father, you um, sent your spirit uh, to teach us um, and uh, to, he's the author of the scriptures and uh, they are for us to grow, to be enlightened, to encounter you. May we encounter you right now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is uh, week, week three in our series on living in the supernatural and uh, we are doing this series because I'm, I'm hoping as we begin the year 2018, we have a vision for what it means to live in the Spirit's power. Uh, this morning, I'm going to talk uh, about more of the Spirit from Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Um, now, the moment you start talking about encountering more of the Spirit, you run into a problem. And the problem is both a theological problem and it's a cultural problem. Um, North America historically has been divided between those people who say we really shouldn't and don't need to aspire to more of the Holy Spirit. We have them. Why do we need more? And others who say, well, we, we, we have them, but we should aspire to more of the Holy Spirit. Now, this divide is not present all across the globe, but it's especially present in North America. The first group says, you know, when you come to Christ, uh, the Spirit comes to indwell you. And that is a positional change. You don't feel it because it happens apart from you encountering it. It just, it happens to you. And you don't really need to encounter more than the Spirit. Well, you can be filled with Him, and that's a good thing. But even when you're filled with the Spirit, you might not always know that you're filled with the Spirit. And people who, people who embrace that position, um, you know, they, they're great people and they love God, but um, there's others who say, okay, I, I get it, you know, God makes positional changes through the Spirit, but where's the emotion? Where's the love for God? Where's the heart to pursue Him and to grow? So this other group says, you know, when you come to Christ, it's more like, more like a marriage relationship. When you get married, of course, you're positionally married. You're not more or less married, you're married. However, married couples are rarely content to just maintain positional marriage. They wanna grow. Every new season of marriage has new challenges for grow. And married couples know that they can learn to be close in new ways. Couples will even fight for this. I'm fighting to be close in our marriage. And since being a follower of Jesus is like a, being in a marriage relationship, the second group says, I should be able to encounter more of the Spirit. I should be able to grow nearer to Him, receive more power from Him, encounter His presence on a greater level. So you got these two groups in America. One says, no, we're, we're fine we're positionally in the spirit, that's great, that's all I want. Other group says, man, I, I want more of the spirit. I want to encounter him on a greater level. <clears throat> if you look back through church history, you see a fascinating group of people who in their writings said, I want more of the spirit. Jonathan Edwards was certainly in this category during the first great awakening. His passion for God and his passion for more of the spirit led to a huge awakening in the early years uh, of our country. Same is true with Evan Roberts, uh, who was 
really the guy used by God to sponsor the Welsh revival. Not sponsor, but to empower the Welsh revival. We see this in John Wesley and in D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody talking about the day that he was walking in downtown New York and he encountered the Spirit in such a full way that he had to say, Lord, no, no, no more. I feel like if I get more, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to physically die. Um, we see this in William J. Seymour, African-American pastor out in Los Angeles, California, and in A.W. Tozer, a very well-known Christian author. Both these men came to a point in their lives where they said, I want more of God. I want to encounter him on a deeper level. We see this with Catherine Booth, the co-founder of the Salvation Army, and in D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, past, a pastor in London who was very instrumental in revival in London. Well, in the passage that we look at today, we're going to see uh, the apostles seeking more of the Spirit after a time of perse- persecution. And I love this passage because it presents us with a wonderful paradigm for us. What they encountered back then, back there in the first century, is something that I think we can encounter now. It's a second encounter with the Spirit. It's a third encounter with the Spirit. It's a fourth encounter with the Spirit. It's a sixth encounter and a seventh. This paradigm that we look at today suggests that we should be yearning for more of the Spirit and encountering more of His fullness and more of His presence. So we start with a story, and it is a great story. The story begins with a healing uh, on the Temple Mount. Up there on the screens, you see a model of what the Temple Mount looked like. It was 34 acres big, and one day, around 2.30 in the afternoon, Peter and John uh, ascend the steps to the Temple Mount in time for the 3 p.m. sacrifice. Um, The church is meeting up on the Temple Mount because there's no other place that's big enough for them. There are thousands of people now who are part of the early church. And the one place in the city that's big enough to meet is in the covered area of the Temple Mount called the Portico of Solomon. It was huge. And so uh, one day, Peter and John are coming up to meet with uh, with the early church. They're up there around 2.30, 3 o'clock, around the time of the sacrifice. And uh, they're coming to this place in the Temple Mount, and they go to the steps right by the Nicanor Gate. And there's a guy at the Nicanor Gate who's been sitting there for many, many years. And the guy has been unable to walk since birth. While other kids are jumping and walking and playing, this kid is is unable to do anything. He's sitting there at the Nicanor Gate. He had been there for a long time. And he must have been really good at begging because in the ancient world, you, you wanted to get the best places. And I would argue this is the best place in the ancient world to go begging because the people coming up these steps are particularly generous. He's got the best place in the ancient world for begging. And he's, uh, he's there. Um, and uh, Peter and John stop, and uh, they notice him. I want to tell you, they knew this guy pretty well because he was there for a long time, and they had seen him every single time they went in and out of the temple. In fact, 
I would imagine that Jesus passed him by many times as Jesus went up and down and into, into the temple. On this particular day, the man says, can I have a little money? And Peter and John stop, um, and we sense the man's shame because his eyes are cast down, not looking at them. And Peter says, look at us. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter takes him from the hand. He rises up, and instantly there is a miracle. And the miracle is a miracle uh, that of, of amazing proportions. You know, in the, the legs and the knees, there's systems going on there. There's, there was muscles that had atrophied. There were nerves that were not registering. And the whole system was, was re-energized. A tremendous miracle took place. And he doesn't just stand up. He jumps up like a point guard on a basketball team. He's a little bit unsteady. Um, he's got his perfectly healthy legs. But he hasn't never walked before, so he's leaning on Peter and John to make sure he can, he can keep his balance. A crowd gathers, and we're talking thousands. And the gist of Peter's sermon is this. Jesus Christ is the one who healed this man. Yes, Jesus Christ, the guy that you killed, the guy that you crucified, he's the one who healed him. But God the Father raised him from the dead. Look, Peter says, we know that you acted in ignorance, but now you got a second chance. This is your chance to repent and come to Jesus and be forgiven of your sins. I'm telling you, the crowd was intense at that moment because the Bible says that 5,000 came to Christ (coughs) as a result of that miraculous healing in Peter's sermon. 5,000. Meanwhile, we have a big problem because while Peter is preaching, the temple authorities rush up and they are seething with anger. They're seething with anger. The captain of the temple is angry because it looks as if things are spinning out of control in the temple mount. They didn't like that because the Roman authorities would rush in and seize control. The Sadducees are angry because Peter's preaching about the resurrection and the Sadducees didn't believe that. The priests are angry because the worship service has been messed up. The three o'clock worship service has been messed up on the Temple Mount. So what do they do? They arrest Peter and John and take them into custody. They lead them across the Temple Mount to the fortress on the north, <coughs> north side, the very place where Jesus was, was uh, flogged not two months before. And uh, the next day, they have some explaining to do. And everybody who's anybody is right there demanding answers. This would be like you appearing in front of the Supreme Court of the United States. And your life is at stake. And the Supreme Court is about ready to render a decision that could affect your entire life. That would be ordinarily very intimidating. That's what Peter and John face. But what we find is these guys are very bold. Acts 4.11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become this cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
Now pause on that word name for a second. In the Old Testament, and especially in the times of the apostles, the word name was synonymous for the name of the Lord, for the name of Yahweh. When they say there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, what they're saying is Jesus, Jesus is Yahweh God of the Old Testament. Yeah, that really completely freaked them out and blew their minds. What really amazed them was that these men they're talking to are not formally educated, and yet they're incredibly articulate, and they exude spiritual power. So what are the rulers going to do? A true miracle has taken place, so they charge them to stop, and they let them go. So after they're, after they're released from prison, they walk back to the portico of Solomon, and a crowd has gathered, I'm sure, to pray for Peter and John. And the crowd is meeting in that place that you see up on the screens. And when Peter and John get there, how are thousands of people going to respond? They're going to sh shout, yes, you guys are back. What happened? And Peter and John um, explain what happened. And in verse 31, notice what it says. And this is the key verse I want to begin with. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Do you see what, what happened in, this, in Acts 4.31? A second Pentecost took place. A second mini Pentecost just occurred. The first Pentecost was Acts chapter 2. There's a second one, a smaller one, with more people that takes place in Acts chapter 4 and verse 31. What's amazing about this is this thing that says shaken, shaken. I've read some people who said, well, it wasn't really physically shaken. Uh, people were emotionally shaken. That's what happened when the Spirit came. It was an, it was an emotional shaking. Or some have said, no, it, it shook their human confidence so that now they're totally trusting in, in God and his confidence. The plain words of this text suggest it was a physical shaking like you would have in an earthquake, and everybody felt it. Now, this is not the only time in the Bible that the coming of the presence of God produces a shaking. For, it, for example, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 4, Isaiah has, he's, he's in the temple, he has a vision of God in the temple, and in that vision of God, the temple shakes. There's a, a shaking of the foundations of the temple. See the same thing back in the Exodus. Psalm 77 celebrates the fact that in the Exodus, when God showed up on Mount Sinai, there was an earthquake-type shaking, Psalm 77. Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes at Pentecost, doesn't say there was an earthquake, but there was a great, mighty, rushing wind that comes through that upper room. And what happens to you when you encounter a mighty, rushing wind? You know, winds that are 40, 50, 60, 70 miles per hour, gale force winds. What happens to the house that you're in? There's a, there's a physical shaking of the house. We see the same thing in Acts 16, 26. Peter's released from jail. 
there's a small earthquake. It releases the doors. The doors open, and people are released. So the shaking that took place in the aftermath of prayer was a physical manifestation of the Spirit's presence. So you might, you might say, okay, well, that was, that was Bible times. Surely that does not take place today, right? Does it? Let me, uh, let me tell you about this guy. This is Craig Keener, pre- professor of New Testament, Asbury Theological Seminary. Uh, Keener is the author of a two-volume work called Miracles. And uh, it's, people tease me about this book because I, I, I purchase these, these two-volume books and I give them away to friends and I tell them where, where, what to read in the book because it's, it's, it's a lot to read. I love this book. And one of the reasons why I love the book is because Keener is, is the quintessential scholar. And it, there's, there's like 14,000 footnotes in this book where he documents with footnotes the miracles that he's talking about, both things that have taken place years and years ago and things that have taken place recently in Africa, Asia, India, and so on. Here's what Keener says. In the history of revivalism, there are numerous reports of houses being shaken by divine power like a dramatic storm. People on the outside of those houses witnessed it. There are other stories of believers falling down as in the Scottish revivals in 1939 and 1949 because there was a shaking of the structures in which those meetings took place. Um, And he's got footnotes that reference those things that he just mentioned there. This is one of the reasons why I like Craig Keener so much. Back to the text. Not only was the place shaken, but they encountered a fresh filling of the Spirit. Now, let me remind you about something with with regard to the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes in your life, He indwells you. The moment you come to Christ, the Spirit comes. He takes up residence inside your body, and He indwells you forever. Jesus said that in the upper room. He indwells you forever. But the filling of the Spirit is different from the indwelling of the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is commanded uh, by by Paul. Uh, Paul commands us to be continuously filled with the Spirit. And that's a choice that we make. We can be indwelt by the Spirit and not filled with the Spirit. But we're commanded to make the choice of being filled with the Spirit on a continual basis. So what exactly is the filling of the Spirit? It's a relational thing. It's the intense sense of God's presence (coughs) that comes when you encounter worship in a strong way, when you encounter His power in a strong way, when you encounter a prophetic insight about something in a strong way. It is a relational nearness that comes with a sense of presence and a sense of power. Um, I sometimes think about this with regard to marriage. Uh, There are times that I can be with Cindy in a relaxing way. Um, We're in the same room. We're not doing the same things. I'm not necessarily talking with her. She's not necessarily talking with me. We indwell the same room. Okay. There are other times where we encounter each other at a much deeper way. Maybe we're out on a date 
Maybe we're at a nice restaurant. Maybe we have a very in-depth conversation. And I say to myself, I really love my wife. I really am glad I married her. And she says to herself, hopefully, I really love my husband. I'm really glad I married him, you know? So now there's a relational fullness where we're encountering each other in a relationally present way. Well, that's an imperfect illustration of the fullness of the Spirit. You are encountering the Spirit and therefore encountering Father and Son in a particularly intense way. Notice that they continued then after the filling of the Spirit to um, speak the word with boldness. The Spirit gave them the power to do the next thing. Now, that's the story. Now, let's look at why I think they encountered the Spirit. Because what we see in the following verses are some disciplines that, that facilitated their encounter with the Holy Spirit. From Acts 4, 30, 23 through 24, I think we can identify three disciplines that are consistent with the outpouring of the Spirit. So let's, let's, read, let's read what happened. Um, <clears throat> when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now I want to argue that right inside those verses are some disciplines that enabled them to encounter the Spirit. Now, let me first tell you the difference between disciplines and formulas, because what we're going to look at is not a formula. Formulas suggest I can do things that force God to act. I do this, God, you got to do it now, because I, I did my part, you got to do your, your part. That's a formula. So that, the disciplines are not that. Formulas suggest that I'm in control. Formulas suggest that I don't necessarily need to be close to the Spirit. And there are some writers who take a formulaic approach to the Christian life. If you do your part, God does his part. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that if you do certain disciplines, those disciplines invite the fullness of the Spirit in your life. Disciplines or activities that I do that shape the culture around me. I'll give you an example from, uh, again, from, our, from our, our marriage. Cindy and I have two different basic times where we're active. I'm active early in the morning. She's active a little bit later on at night. I usually get home before she does. I'm home and she might get back 8.30, maybe, maybe 9 o'clock. So I have a discipline that I do. And my discipline is, whenever I hear the garage door come in, I, Sadie and I, the dog, we go to the door, I open the door, and I welcome her home. Now, why am I doing that discipline? The reason why I'm doing that discipline is because I want to create a culture in our marriage of appreciation, of gratitude, of gratefulness, so that she knows that I am excited 
that she's come home. We, we might not have connected much the entire day. I want her to know when she comes home that I am excited that she's there. That's a discipline. But guess what? That discipline invites a response on her part, a response of gratitude that I care and that the dog cares and that I have the dog with me. That's important. Um, it, invites, it invites a relational closeness. So we see in these, in these verses this sense of relational closeness. Um, when they were released, they went to their friends, and here's the beginning prayer. Prayer is, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. Okay? Notice, though, that before that, their discipline is corporate prayer. Let me say something about corporate prayer. When we pray corporately, we create an, an atmosphere around us where there's the fullness of God. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, what's the rest? There I am in their midst, right? That's a promise. If I will submit to the discipline of corporate prayer, I may encounter that promise, the promise of the, the presence of God in the space of that corporate prayer. What does it mean to gather in Jesus' name? Remember the, sermon, remember the, uh, uh, the Great Commission. Jesus says, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if I'm gathering in Jesus' name, that means I'm gathering in the Trinitarian presence of God. I'm gathering, anticipating that I am, I am right now in the Trinitarian presence of the God of the universe. I'm not, I'm not gathering with God being somewhere out there between the Milky Way galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy. I'm gathering. He's way, way out there. I'm, I'm, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm praying to you way out there somewhere in the universe. No, when I gather together in Christ's name, I'm realizing that the triune God is right near me, right in the space that surrounds me. His invisible presence is right there. That's what I'm saying. And that discipline of corporate prayer invites a sense of the presence of God. So if you submit to that discipline, you will increasingly encounter a sense of God's presence. I've told you this a number of, number of times, but we, we have pockets in our church that are doing more and more of this. Our healing prayer is doing more and more of this. And I have come away from healing prayer sessions where I've thought, wow, did I ever feel a sense of God's presence in that healing prayer session? It was amazing to me. Our Thursday morning prayer group has experienced some of this. Some of our small groups have learned to enter this. If you want a fresh direction in your spiritual growth and encounter more of the Spirit, you have to submit to the discipline of regular corporate prayer. Where you're gathering in his name, which means I'm gathering in the Trinitarian presence of the infinite personal God, not sensing he's way out there in the universe someplace and I can't get to him, but that he is right here in this room in the space that surrounds us. That's corporate prayer in Jesus' name. That discipline invites the presence of God. And then go to this word in Acts 4.24 that says, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord. 
What they do now is they engage in praise. Praise is another thing that invites the presence of God. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the holy mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. They are engaged in this discipline of praise. Um, notice how they start with their praise. They praise God for his power. That word sovereign Lord there means despot. Despot. Who have they just encountered in their trial? Despotic rulers. Rulers who acted like petty dictators, like little tyrants. And what they're doing is they're saying, God, you are the ultimate power. And we praise you. You are the sovereign Lord. Nothing happens except by your sovereign will. They are praising God for his sovereign power. Notice also they're praising God for his works. He's the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Heaven, very high. Earth, very low. Sea, out there, Mediterranean Sea, all that is in them, very low. What they're doing is they're, they're, they're looking at nature at a multi-dimensional level. What they're saying is, I want to see the fullness of nature, the, the height and the depth. I want to see the breadth of nature, and I want to praise God for what I see in nature. Now, we don't know how long this prayer was, but all we have in the scriptures are the contours of this prayer, height and depth, length and breadth. One of the things that happens when you engage in praise is you become more creative and more aware of the greatness of God. Remember one time being in North Carolina, family reunion, the moon rose directly over the Atlantic Ocean. Everybody in my house was in, was in bed. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And I, uh, I got up, went out of the house, went out of the back of the house, walked down to the beach, and I waded up to my knees in the water as the waves are, are coming down. And I, I just thought, Lord, this is the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. And I, I encountered a sense of God's fullness as I am worshiping him and praising him for the drama of nature that I'm seeing unfold before me. One of the things that's great about praising God for his works is that you are able to be more creative. You see beauty and you praise him for it. You see beauty in animals, you praise him for it. You see beauty in, in the plants, you praise him for it. It allows you to be more creative. They praise him also for the promises uh, in his word. Uh, your David, your servant, was inspired by the Spirit, and he penned Psalm 2. And now we find something very interesting. Psalm 2 is about the Gentiles raging. But who, who just raged against them on the Temple Mount? Well, I mean, it was primary, primarily the religious leaders who were raging. So what they're doing is that they're, they're embracing God's word and they're interpreting it in the power of the Spirit. What they're realizing is those Jewish leaders are acting just like the Gentile leaders that David writes about in Psalm 2. And so the first discipline is corporate prayer. The second discipline is praise. Praise unlocks a sense of the presence of God. The third discipline 
is the discipline of making bold requests. Look at the requests that they make. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That, that is a very interesting way of saying it. What did Jesus typically do when he healed people? He stretched out his hand and he touched them, signifying a transfer of presence and a transfer of power. What are they requesting of the resurrected Jesus? Lord Jesus, you're seated at the right hand of God the Father. What we're asking is that you would stretch out your hand of power to heal and perform signs of wonders. They're asking that God would give birth to the miraculous. Camp on that for a moment. They're asking that God would give birth to the miraculous. Let me go back to Craig Keener's um, two-volume book on miracles. Remember, 1,000 pages long, 14,000 footnotes, astonishing piece of scholarship. Keener has gathered together thousands upon thousands of documented examples where God has had miraculous answers, dramatic answers to prayers. And here's something that Keener says uh, toward the end of his book. And when I read this, this, this just this really made me stop and pause and think. What Keener says is that if there's one principle you can take from all the examples, it's this. The more you pray, the more you encounter answers to prayer. Like, does that sound earth-shatteringly surprising? The more you pray, the more you tend to encounter answers to prayer. The more you pray for dramatic sorts of things, the more you encounter dramatic answers to prayer. One of the things that people have asked me, because we've had the privilege of, of going overseas and doing things in Russia and Cuba and Costa Rica and Colombia, why is it that it seems as if God pours out his power more dramatically uh, in places outside the U.S.? Why is that? I have a lot of people ask me that question. Why does it seem as if God pours out dramatic answers to prayer outside the U.S.? And my answer is twofold. Number one, people outside the U.S. are generally far more desperate for God's intervention. Answer number two is, who says he's not doing that in the U.S.? I recently read Eric Metaxas's excellent book on miracles. And Metaxas's whole point in writing his book on miracles was to ask the question, where is God doing dramatic things in the United States? Metaxas is not a Pentecostal. Metaxas uh, would probably not classify himself as somebody who was from a charismatic background. But Metaxas says God is definitely doing things in the United States in response to prayer that we would have to say are dramatic answers to prayer and even miraculous answers. Sometimes I've heard people say, I don't want to pray those kind of prayers. 
I don't want to pray those bold prayers. Because what if I pray those bold prayers and they're not answered? It's going to make me have doubts about God. Other people will say, I don't really want to ask God for stuff. That's about me. That's about being selfish. I'm not going to ask God for stuff. The apostles are asking that God would give birth to the miraculous in a desperate time of need. Now, these disciplines are not formulas. They're not formulas. You can't do this and demand your <coughs> results. God, you promised I'm, I'm demanding this. These are disciplines. But these are, these are the disciplines of praise. Disciplines of, of corporate prayer. The disciplines of, of making bold requests. I want, I want to ask you, are you in the habit of doing these things in your personal life? When's the last time you asked God for his miraculous intervention in something that seemed impossible? When have you done that? I, I would hope this is something that you would be in the habit of doing weekly or daily. When's the last time you gathered with another group of believers in Christ's name and you felt the tangible manifest presence of God? That ought to be a discipline that happens on a regular basis. When's the last time you engage in an extended period of praise that lasted for more than maybe 30 seconds or five minutes? See, these are the kind of disciplines that invite, that facilitate, that anticipate the manifest presence of God. Not formulas, but disciplines that invite this. And uh, notice again the outcome when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What did they get? They got more of the Spirit. A second encounter, or maybe it was a third encounter, or a fourth encounter, or a fifth encounter, or a sixth encounter. They encountered more of the Spirit. But it all goes back to these core disciplines. Corporate prayer, praise, making big requests. Now, let me close with some takeaways. Three lessons about experiencing more of the Spirit. Number one, do a self-assessment. And the self-assessment is this. Do you believe it's possible to encounter more of the Spirit? Do you believe that? That self-assessment is really important. Because the, the probably three answers. No, I don't. Maybe. Yes. Uh, I really think God wants to get you into the yes column. I was talking to my daughter who uh, is, is um, spent 11 years in the UK. And I said, Sarah, why is it that so many people in the UK right now live with this anticipation of the miraculous? This is like embedded in the culture of the church at large, not the Church of England, not the established church, but in the movements in, in England. Why, why is that? And she said, Dad, it is so hard to be a Christian in the UK. It is so difficult that people realize I have no choice but to depend radically on the resources of the Holy Spirit. And God shows up for them. The second part of the self-assessment is, if more of the Spirit was possible, would you want it? Would you want it? Honestly, I've talked to people who said, I don't know that I want to be closer to my spouse. I don't know that I really want to be closer to my kids. 
I don't know that I want to be closer to my friends. I'm okay. I'm okay. If more of the Spirit was possible, would you want it? And I know that there are some believers who said, I know I should, but I don't. I don't. Is that bad? And my response would be, there's so much more that you could encounter if you aspired to more of the Spirit. Remember what Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door and lets me in, I will dine with him. I will have fellowship with him and he with me. The Lord wants to be involved deeply in your life. Second self-assessment. Uh, start small. What happened to the apostle Peter when Jesus showed up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee? Peter realized, oh man, I have got to get with Jesus. I've got to get with him. We've, we've not resolved things since the three denials. So Peter throws himself into the water. He thrashes to the shore. He's wet and dripping. And Jesus leads him into a restoration. And all Jesus says is, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Starting small means that you start to encounter more of the Spirit by saying to God, Lord, I love you. I love you. I have, I have a discipline that I do um, every, every night. If I get up in the middle of the night, automatically, my discipline is to say, Jesus, I love you. That's my automatic discipline. It took about three or four years for that to become automatic. And even sometimes now, you know, I gotta, I gotta make myself remember that I, I've gotta do that. That's an automatic discipline. But that automatic discipline has produced in me a shift in my emotions toward the Lord. You start small when you want more, more of God. And it starts by just doing what Peter did, saying, Yes, Lord, I love you. And then the final application is this. Focus on what the Bible commands. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. I can't go into all of that this morning, but let me tell you basically what this means. What prophecy means is I, I'm open to receiving what God might say to me through his word or in prayer. I process that. And I use that to encourage other people. There's a whole lot more I could say about that. Since the Bible commands that, I would say that's a pretty good thing for us to try to put into practice. So I'm gonna, I just want to end here by asking you this question. Where are you today in terms of your desire? On a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you desire more of God? Name that number. And then let me, let me pray, and I want you to do something with that number. Father God, I want to ask that you would help us to bump that number up that we might encounter more of you. And Lord, I pray for everybody here that it would begin with a simple statement, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I want to encounter you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.